moving on to the Fitzgerald stories, and I just want to make an announcement um, about a possible uh, field trip to New York City. Uh, Mouve Emre, one of the teaching fellows, um, is uh, organizing uh, a trip uh, to see the uh, uh, production uh, of uh, on The Sun Also Rises, uh, which is another novel by Hemingway. It's by the select, it's by the elevated, uh, what, is, what is the group called? Uh, express elevator service. Um, so um, it's, it's very interesting. They last year they did the Great Gatsby. Um, so it's the uh, it was right here, um, and at the Yale Rep. Uh, so it's a very interesting group, and it looks like they're going to keep on doing this extended readings, but also dramatic readings uh, of the novel. So if you guys would like to go to see the Sun Also Rises, just email email movie, um, and um, I should. I'm just going to get started on the Fitzgerald stories. Um, and we might be under the misimpression um, from reading these short stories that maybe Fitzgerald went to Yale. Um, he didn't. <laughs> uh, he was Princeton class of 1917. Um, and this is actually a kind of very interesting that I found from the Princeton Library. Um, that's the um, a kind of receipt that he had at the Triangle Club, uh, and because so many of his short stories have to do with clubs, the Yale Club, and so on, um, it's interesting just to have this document showing that he was a member of the Triangle Club. Um, and this is a letter that he wrote to his classmate, also Princeton uh, 1917, uh, Laszlo Fowler, who would go on to become a very prominent uh, New York lawyer, the founder. Um, of a very prominent law firm. This is what he wrote to Ludlow Fowler. I have written a 15,000 word story about you called The Rich Boy. It is in a large measure the story of your life, toned down here and there and simplified. Also, many gaps had to come out of my imagination. It is frank, unsparing, but sympathetic. I think you will like it. <laughs> it's astonishing that he should think so, that anyone would actually like this story that is supposedly based on their lives. Uh, but in any case, this is what authors sometimes think um, about their own work. Um, so, you know, I, I think we know just from our edition in, in the short stories um, that there were um, a couple of episodes that Ludlow Fowler made Fitzgerald uh, take out. Uh, they are reinserted now in brackets, but obviously there was historical proof that Ludlow Fowler was pretty upset by the story. Um, but in any case, Fitzgerald really thought that this was a story about a friend of his, um, and that the friendship was actually what <coughs> propelled him into writing the story. Um, so he is also in that story that he lays out uh, his theory about fiction and especially the way that characters are to be described in fiction. So here's Fitzgerald, begin with an individual, and before you know it, you find that you have created a type. Begin with a type, and you find that you have created nothing. There are no types, no plurals. There is a rich boy, and this is his, and not his brother's story. All my life, I have lived among his brothers, but this one has been my friend. So still saying 
in, within the story itself that this is um, about someone um, who he still calls his friend. This is his theory. Let's see what Fitzgerald does in practice because we know that quite often there's a distance between what authors profess they're, they're doing and what they actually end up doing. So this is his practice right on the next page. Let me tell you about the very rich. They are different from you and me. They possess and enjoy early, and it does something to them, makes them soft, diffused with such and cynical where we are trustful, in a way that unless you were born, but also an unusual awkward understand. They think deep in more of himself than usual, but a good deal more intense. Um, so this, to my mind, captures very well uh, both what is good about the novel and what makes it worth reading in my mind. Uh, but also, obviously, it points to some uh, very clear defects about the novel. It's also a very good characterization of Hemingway in terms of the old icy brilliance um, and the, the assonance in uh, Hemingway's prose that makes it almost like poetry at many moments. Um, so it's just a very good overall account of Hemingway, uh, but also a special uh, take and very, um, I think, very true to the spirit of Hemingway in thinking that it's both less well-crafted, uh, but maybe closer to Hemingway's heart. One more uh, quote from another critic, uh, and very understandable, given the subject matter of uh, to have and have not, saying that Hemingway was one of the least overtly political writers of his generation. I think it's a very interesting statement. Um, he was one of the least overtly political. Does that mean that even though he's not overtly political, um, that actually uh, there's a kind of deep politics in the novel? Uh, so I would like to not overt, but something that once we look deeper and further into the novel, we'll get to see that there's some politics there. Um, so I would like to take that as a starting point um, and to ask whether or not to have and have not is a political novel. Um, and as is the custom in this class, I would like to think about it um, on a number of on two different scales. Um, one is through the macro history uh, that is the background to the novel. Um, and we know that because uh, Harry Morgan has so much to do with Cubans, who are trying to get to the United States in part one, and then Cubans who want to get back to Havana in part three. Uh, we know that Cuban politics is very much there. Um, and along with that, and parallel of that, there is also the Great Depression in, in the United States. So this is very much a novel of the 1930s. These are the macro politics um, that make up the context of the novel. Um, and moving to a somewhat different scale, uh, in the scale of character, um, portrayal of character, narrative technique. Um, I like to think about the novel as uh, different permutations of have and have not. So in that sense, it's really uh, the theme and variations on the title itself. Um, and I'll be talking about Harry um, as a have not in several ways, uh, linking that to the macro history of the novel. Uh, but then, 
what I really would like to make a case for in the rest of the lecture is Harry as a special kind of half, what I would call a mediated kind of half. That is, he becomes, even though he's so obviously a half-not, he becomes a half through the presence of somebody else. So this is what I mean by mediated half, through the presence of another person, either it could be Marie, or it could be somebody like uh, Richard Gordon. Um, Harry gets to become a half. So this is an argument about Harry not being a half on his own, but becoming a half by virtue of either a channeling process by way of Marie. Um, and he's channeled through Marie both because of the way she thinks about him and also because of the way he looks at her. And he contrasted with Richard Gordon both because of the way Richard looks at Marie and because of the way Richard Gordon talks to his own wife, Helen. So um, it's a very much a permutation, a kind of a, a dance, really, among characters um, in order uh, for Harry to emerge as a half at the very end. So, but first of all, let's um, go back to the macro history of uh, Cuba in the 1930s. Um, and as you can see, um, there, it, the politics of Cuba was incredibly complicated in the 30s. Um, there were six presidents in three years. Um, so I'm not even, you're under no obligation to remember the names of the presidents. Um, I won't even pronounce names, but I just want to give you a sense of how long they were presidents. Um, so most of the presidents were presidents for just a few months, um, in this case, um, less than a month, um, less than just a few months, um, in the case of Ramon Grau, um, just for three days, um, in the case of Carlos <laughs> Um And this is, this beats everything. He was president for just one day, Manuel Marquez Sterling. Um, and then, okay, slightly longer, uh, a few months as a record, and uh, a few months. So um, I think that it's just really clear, you know, just from looking at the list of presidents of Cuba um, in the, between 1933 and 1936, um, that the politics was just incredibly hard to figure out. Um, and as I mentioned last time, Hemingway was actually not in Cuba when he was writing to have and have not, he was in the Bahamas. Uh, so it's highly improbable that he would have been able to figure out the politics of Cuba in, in any intimate way. Um, he would have been looking at it very much um, from the outside. He probably understood the politics of the Spanish Civil War uh, that he was covering much, much better than the actual politics in Cuba that was his setting. Um, so instead of giving us, uh, so the, as a consequence, the presidents of Cuba were never mentioned. We don't even know who was president. Um, then um, instead, what Hemingway gives us is a generic type. Um, this is the young boy, Emilio, um, who is one of the passengers that have to be carried back to Havana after the bank robbery. Um, so this is um, the very dangerous trip uh, for Harry. Um, but he gets to talk to the boy quite a bit and likes him, he also kills him. 
but this is a generic type of the revolutionary marked by his speech pattern. We are the only true revolutionary party, the boy said. We want to do away with all the old politicians, with all the American imperialism that strangles us, with the tyranny of the army. We want to start clean and give every man a chance. We want to end the slavery of the Guajiros, you know, the peasants. We just raise money now for the fight, the boy said. To do that, we have to use means that later we would never use. Also, we have to use people we will not employ later. But the end is worth the means. Emilio is a young boy, uh, but he talks like a much older person. There's actually a lot of authority, um, and I don't think that Hemingway is just giving this to us as a caricature. There's a certain kind of authority that comes from a certain vocabulary, a certain speech pattern. The boy almost didn't have to think in order to say all those things because he's so familiar with that kind of phrasing, that kind of idiom. Um, he's completely conditioned in that idiom um, so that it really is second nature to him. And we can think a little bit about what it means to have that kind of second nature. I think that most of us tend to think that it is not good to have that kind of language drilled into us. So there's almost a kind of reflex action for it to come out just like that. Um, I think we tend to be very suspicious of people who talk in this kind of um, very dogmatic and kind of generic kind of language. Um, you know that well, you can you can hear two sentences and you know that this man is a radical um, and he's wearing his radicalism on his sleeve. Um, so this is a, a man who, um, in, in many ways, he, he, we don't even know if his true name is Emilio. Um, he just says to Harry, "You can call me Emilio." Because um, going back to the famous line in Moby Dick, "Call me Ishmael," many many characters in American literature would say to another character, call me something. This is a very, very minor local instance of this, um, but we don't know his true name. Uh, he's just known by the name Emilio. Um, and that in itself is emblematic of the kind of character that he is. Um, but I want to go back to the point about what it means to have a second nature, a second linguistic nature. Um, and even though our instinct, our gut reaction is to be very suspicious of someone like that. I actually want to make the point that having a second nature like that is probably not the worst thing a human being can have. You know, it is probably not the best thing a human being can have. But it probably is not the worst thing. Um, because it is a sort of religious faith. Um, that is cast in secular language. And to the extent that we think that human beings need some kind of faith, it actually is very, very good to have that second nature. So I, you know, I think that Hemingway is partly caricaturing that style talking, <coughs> but he's showing us what it means to have your being within that kind of language. Um, it's a problematic kind of being, most of us would reject it, but it is kind of a viable kind of being. And in contrast, we can look at Harry, and this is the first 
instance when I would like to make a case for Harry as a have-not is that he just doesn't have that kind of political conviction. He doesn't have the second nature that is second nature to Emilio. And as a consequence, that's how he talks. I want to drink, Harry was thinking. What the hell do I care about his revolution? Afterward, his revolution. To have the working man, he robs the bank and kills a fellow who works with him and then kills that poor damn Albert that never did any harm. That's a working man he kills. He never thinks of that. With a family, it's the Cubans run Cuba. They all double-cross each other. They sell each other out. They get what they deserve. The hell with the revolutions. All I got to do is make a living for my family, and I can't do that. Then he tells me about his revolution, the hell with his revolution. Um, it's a reaction that probably most of us would have. Uh, you know, the Cuban, especially in the 30s, uh, that sort of revolution would feel that way to most people who are outside of it. But the point remains that feeling that way about the revolution gives Harry no alternative moral grounding. This speech is almost completely empty of any kind of moral foundation, any kind of political conviction. Um, all he can say is, I want to drink at this moment. Um, and um, that, you know, I want to make a living for my family, and I can't do that. So it is almost a kind of a total omission of defeat without having this dubious saving grace of some sort of political conviction that can point to some sort of exit from this horrible condition that you are in. Um, I'm not saying that, that Amelia represents a superior alternative to Harry, quite the contrary. He's deluded, um, I think that you know, Hemingway is not leaving a lot of doubt about that. Uh, Amelia is deluded, but at certain points in one's life, a certain degree of willful delusion is actually a very necessary fiction that um, lots of human beings need. Uh, and um, it is probably better for Amelia to die, still clinging to that political conviction. Um, and this is what happens to Harry when he cannot cling, when there's really nothing for him to cling to, uh, when he's relying completely on his own mental resources, and there's not a whole lot for him to cling to. He's a pretty empty person left to his own devices. Um, so this is, the, I would argue that this is the first instance of Harry as a have-not, only in the sense that he doesn't have that dubious but redeeming kind of second nature. Um, I, we also know that the Cuban revolutions, such as they were, um, were not the only reference point for the novel. Um, for, to have and have not is very much about Key West and Key West during the Great Depression. Uh, so this is Hemingway's house, a beautiful house in Key West that he spent a lot of time in later, um, actually much, much later, not at this point. Um, but this would have been what uh, people in Key West would have seen uh, during the Great Depression, the red lines. Um, and this is one that is actually uh, from the Florida Historical Archives, um, most likely Key West, um, because 
Key West, which is a very prosperous city before the Great Depression, was especially hard hit by the Depression. So the unemployment rate was 80%, 80% um, of the citizens were actually on relief. And you see that Albert is someone uh, who was on relief. So um, this is about the most acute case study of the Great Depression that we get in American literature, except that Hemingway is not really talking about the Great Depression in a frontal way. Um, and we can look at the way in which even the word Great Depression, or without even the great, um, is uh, suggested to us that that is an allusion <coughs> to that historical context. Um, so this is how the Great Depression is registered by Harry. On the booth boat, Harry, had the last sack over. Give me the fish knife, he said to the nigger. It's gone. Harry pressed the self-starters and started the two engines. He put a second engine in her. He went back to running liquor when the depression had put charter boat fishing on the boat. So there's three, there are at least two ways in which Harry, as a smuggler of liquor, two ways in which that is contextualized. First, we don't know about this. We, we don't, can only conjecture in part one. In part two, um, Harry is both revealed to us as a smuggler, but uh, we just think that maybe that's just something that he chooses to do. But then it comes out in the context of the Great Depression that he goes back to it because the Great Depression has made the much more profitable charter, house, charter boat fishing um, impossible. In part one, he was still doing the charter boat fishing when he was uh, cheated out of $825 by Mr. Johnson. That was still the charter boat fishing. Uh, that is no longer operative. And the only way he could make a living is by smuggling liquor into the United States. So right now, that is the way, that this very oblique, um, very elusive way is the way Hemingway indexes um, the Great Depression. And I think it's really useful to think of um, the technique that Hemingway is using as a kind of indexing. It's not a frontal, uh, full dress description of the Great Depression. It's just um, a kind of very, a cameo appearance that puts the depression in the index, so to speak, of the novel, uh, but it's, it, it doesn't engage it or put it in the foreground. Um, and we can, I hope that you guys will talk about it in section why he chooses to talk about the depression in that way, in this very oblique fashion. Uh, but in this passage, uh, we can also see that Harry is a have-not um, for these three reasons. One is that he's lost his original occupation, although there's also the reference that he's going back to running liquor. So you know, he must have been doing that at some earlier point. We don't know why he was doing it. All we know is that he had been law-abiding for quite a while as an owner of a charter boat. Um, and now he's doing something that is illegal because of the Great Depression. So he loses his legal occupation. Um, right now, we know also know that he's losing actually all his liquor he's, because he's uh, at the customs uh, uh, on him, so he has to get rid of all his liquor um, that 
cost a lot of money. Um, but not only that, even that small detail about the fish knife, even that is gone. So in many ways, to have and have not is very detailed from the macro to the micro catalog of all the things that are being taken away from Harry. Um, it really is sort of adding insult to injury. You lose in a big way, you also lose in a very small way. Um, that's really um, the landscape uh, of loss that Hemingway has created for Harry Morgan. And um, just one other um, portrait of him as a have not, and this is Harry thinking about he knows that those Cubans um, that want the, the, the Cubans who want to be taken back to uh, Havana, he knows that they're going to rob a bank because every time he walks by a bank, he doesn't want to look at the bank. So he actually knows that that's what's going to happen. You know? uh, so gullible as not to know the purpose uh, of that trip, um, but he's not in a position to make any other choices at that point. So I would say this is the ultimate measure of Harry as a have not, is knowing that he should not be doing this but having no other choice open to him. I could stay here now and I'll be out of it, but what the hell would they eat on? Where's the money coming from to keep Marie and the girls? I've got no boat, no cash, I've got no education. What can a one-armed man look at? All I've got is my cojones to paddle. Um, so this is the, the kind of the ultimate um, blow against someone who would like to operate as an individual, is to be able at least to make a decision based on your own judgment. Everything in Harry's judgment tells him that this is not something to do. His judgment is not at fault. His hands are tied. He has to do, go against his judgment and do something that everything in him would recoil against and warn him against. Um, so this is the ultimate um, emptying out of every decisional process has been taken away from Harry. He loses material objects like boat. The boat was uh, confiscated by, by customs after it was found to be uh, illegal. It was smuggling liquor that was confiscated, so taken away from him. Um, and now we know that he has no money and obviously no education and missing, missing one arm. Um, so it's at this moment, uh, this is the absolute low point, I would say, uh, for Harry. And now I want to go to a slightly um, different uh, trajectory. Uh, what I would like to suggest is actually the beginning of an upward trajectory. And the beginning of this upward trajectory is going to be very, very stark. Um, it is Harry as an ironic half. Um, this is the moment when we know that Harry is dying. He's been wounded. Uh, we know that all the Cubans were killed by Harry. Um, and Harry was also fatally wounded uh, by Rubeau, the Cuban. Um, so all of them uh, were dying on the boat, but Harry was the last to die. Um, and he, this is the moment before his death, and what he has at that moment. He was on his back now with his knees 
drawn up and his head back. The water of the lake that was his belly was very cold. So cold that when he stepped into his edge, it numbed him. And he was extremely cold now. And everything tasted of gasoline, as though he had been sucking on a hose to siphon a tank. He knew there was no tank, although he could feel a cold rubber hose that seemed to have entered his mouth and now was coiled, big, cold, and heavy, all down through him. Each time he took a breath, the hose coiled colder and firmer in his lower abdomen, and he could feel it like a big, smooth, moving snake in there, about the sloshing of the way. This is in chapter 20, chapter 20, and I urge you to read that chapter at least a couple of times. It is great, great writing uh, when the critics um, admitted to having um, really impressive prose in To Have and Have Not, they must have been thinking of chapter 20. It's just a great chapter, um, and it's about a boat with dead men and the fish coming to uh, fish on the drippings uh, from the wounds on the dead man. Uh, but it's, it's a great description of human mortality uh, against a sea of very vibrant and obviously living sea creatures. Um, but the passage right here is a description, um, and I think that it maybe is a challenge from Hemingway, although I wouldn't want to push this uh, too much. Um, is a challenge to us to think about what it means to die and what exactly do we have at the moment of death. Um, Harry actually does have something, although it's not anything that anyone would want to have. He has this rubber hose that is inside him. That's making him colder and colder. Um, it is not a possession that we would volunteer or it's a possession that most of us would like to have taken out of it. But it's a possession, nonetheless. So I would like to at least put forth the possible uh, argument uh, that because of the kind of life that Harry has lived, um, even though there's so many strikes against him, even though all the odds against him. The moment of death actually is his own moment in the sense that he's living his physicality to its fullest. This is not um, dying without knowing that you are dying, although he does lose consciousness after that. It is experiencing death to its fullest extent. Um, and uh, And just having that uh, register on every fiber of your being. Um, it, I don't know how much we want to push on this point, um, but I like to see this as the beginning of the kind of upward swing of the narrative, um, that this is the moment when we can begin to stop thinking of Harry as a have-not, and to stop thinking of him as a have, although a have in a very ironic sense, um, having a possession that uh, most of us would much rather not have. But from this point, I would like, make, like to make um, a much more systematic argument 
um, about Harry as a have, and do you think that this is something that Hemingway is doing in a very deliberate fashion? So I would very much want to argue that this is actually the basic structure of to have and have not, um, is to show Harry as a have through the mediated presence of other people. So we'll be looking at him um, through Marie and looking at him through Richard Coverland. So what Marie thinks about Harry. Unlucky, she was thinking. Those girls, they don't know what they'll get. I know what I've got and what I've had. I've been a lucky woman. I've been a lucky woman. There ain't no other man like that. People ain't never tried them, don't know. I've had plenty of them. I've been lucky to have him. Um, it's suggested to us that um, Marie was a sporting woman, that um, was her profession. Um, so she's had lots of men in her professional capacity. Um, and it is from that wealth of knowledge of men that she can say that Harry is really, is at that point, is the best. Um, that she's tried them all and there's just no one like Harry. So it's a dubious kind of compliment. You know, you don't want to have a prostitute kind of saying that, uh, testifying to the fact that you are the best um, when that happens to be your wife. Um, so once again, Hemingway is really taking away with one hand what he's giving with another. But there is no question that Harry has made Marie's life the life that she's enjoying at that moment, that she's having a good life. She's having a good life only because of him. He is the thing that gives her a good life. Um, and that is the measure of what Harry has. So it's a very much more complicated, mediated kind. He has something because of the good life that Marie has because of him. And without Marie, we wouldn't have been able to say that. Um, so this is the first upward swing of that trajectory towards Harry as a possible half. And I would like to add that it is not just because of the way that he's treated Marie and the way that Marie has, is now having a good life because of him, but also because of the way he looks at Marie. So there is action coming from him as well. We can sort of understand why Marie is having a good life now um, and why he has made all the difference to her life. So here, Marie, Harry is going on this dangerous trip with the Cubans after, when he knows that it's the bank robbery that is uh, at stake. And Marie wants to go with him just to take care of the jugs and you know, take care, because he has only one arm at this point. She wants to do something for him on the boat and she wants to come along. So he says, all right, he told her. And she got in beside him, a big woman, Long-legged, big-handed, big-hipped, still handsome, a hat pulled down over her bleach blonde hair. What are you worried about, Harry? I don't know. I'm just worried. Listen, are you letting your hair grow up? I thought I would. The girls have been after me. The hell with them. You keep it like it is. Do you really want me to? Yes, he said. That's the way I like it. You don't think I look too old? You look better than any of them. So that's why. That's why Marie has a good life. 
is because of the way Harry treats her. And we see exactly how he treats her, um, that he likes her the way she is. And, um, you know, and he tells her that he's worried, but he doesn't want to tell her the full extent of it, of his worry, so he changes the subject when she wants to find out more. Um, all of this make Marie's life a good life, and it is all encapsulated in this one small passage. And the contrast of that comes out in that previous passage. We know that Marie is probably a big woman. Um, she has long-legged, big hands, big hips, and so on. Um, we don't know exactly how big she is until <laughs> we get to see her through the eyes of Richard Gordon. And then it's kind of a shock uh, to see this passage uh, coming through the, the eyes of a neutral or uh, hostile observer, although not really hostile, he's really neutral, um, but a very unkind neutral observer. Riding his bicycle, he passed a heavy set, big, blue-eyed woman with bleached blonde hair showing under her old man's felt hat. Hurrying across the road, her eyes red from crying. Looking at that, look at that big ox, he thought. What do you suppose a woman like that thinks about? What do you suppose she goes, she does in bed? What does her husband feel about her when she gets that size? In today's chapter, he was going to use the big woman with the tear-reddened eyes he had just seen on the way home. Her husband, when he came home at night, hated her hated the way she had coarsened and grown heavy, was repelled by her bleached hair, her two big breasts. He has seen in the flesh of perception the whole inner life of that type of woman. So Hemingway is both dramatizing the process of labeling people, the making of social types, and showing considerable uh, doubt whether that is a good practice to say the least. Um, it is really interesting that Richard Gordon um, is a writer, so you know I think that Hemingway is probably thinking about himself as well, and whether uh, it's an entirely ethical practice even uh, to populate his novel with social types. I mean, right now he's actually creating another social type, a writer who doesn't care about his subjects and only wants to use them um, to write uh, novels to his own satisfaction. Um, so um, this is, uh, he's both talking about Richard Gordon and maybe expressing a little bit of worry about himself as well. But in any case, if we move away from Hemingway's own investment and his psychology, um, possible psychology in creating someone like Richard Gordon, we can say that this is a direct affirmation of what a kind man Harry Morgan is. And it's not just kindness that enables him to look past the bigness of Marie. It's, it's probably not just kindness, so it's you know, understating the case. It's something else uh, that truly doesn't bother him that she's so big. Uh, when it probably would, most people would have noticed that about her. Uh, so it says something about uh, that relationship, whatever we call it. It is one that turns a big woman into a beautiful woman. Um, and to the extent that 
Harry is able to do that. He is kind of a magician of sorts. He has a kind of emotional magic that changes Marie into something else. Um, and in the process of that transformation, he also acquires an identity. He is the person who's able to do this to Marie and do this for Marie. This is the ultimate measure of someone who has magic in his hands. Sorry. Um, so it's a, a, the, and we also know, um, just from the very desolate landscape at the end of the story, um, that the tomorrow is going to be totally different uh, from the today within the story. Um, so um, I have to confess that I like the story a lot, but I actually like drama on a smaller scale. So uh, beneath Bob's my hair, Bob's her hair is actually my favorite story uh, among the, the, the Fitzgerald stories. Um, and I hope that you see why it's about reversion to an original type and an unknown future. So um, Fitzgerald, um, I think, really liked the story as well. So that is the story that is featured in the cover, uh, on the cover of the collection of short stories, um, Flappers and Philosophers. And um, if you guys, if the word flappers, um, if that doesn't ring a bell right away, this is an image of the very famous flappers of the 1920s, people who bob the hair and wear short skirts, shoulder legs, um, and so on. Um, so the flappers. Um, but the, so you guys know that the story is really about someone who's becoming a flapper. So Denise is going to, I mean, has, in fact, cut off all her beautiful hair, you know, tons and tons of hair. She's cut it off, has it cut off. Um, but it turns out that that's exactly the wrong hairdo for her. So she's very, very ugly after that. Um, and her bows stop, her bows lose all interest in her. Um, and um, she is one person to thank her cousin. So this is what happens to the person that she has to thank. Bernice deftly amputated the other braid. Her cousin, Marjorie, um, is sleeping. And this is what happens to Marjorie when she's asleep. Bernice deftly amputated the other braid, paused for an instant, and then flitted swiftly and silently back to her own room. After a minute's brisk walk, she discovered that her left hand still held the two blonde braids. She laughed unexpectedly, had to shut her mouth hard to keep from emitting an absolute peal. She was passing Warren's house now, and on the impulse, she set down her baggage and swinging the braids like pieces of rope, flung them at a wooden porch where they landed with a slight thud. She laughed again, no longer straining herself. <coughs> She giggled wildly, scalp the selfish thing. So, I mean, you know, it really is, in one sense, no big deal. Hair will grow out, Bernice's hair will grow out, Marjorie's hair will also grow out. So cutting off somebody's braids is not like the end of the world, as it is in a diamond as big as the wrist. But still, you know, it's an interesting kind of drama. And what makes the drama especially interesting is the fact that Marjorie, that the Bernice actually uses the word Galp, which is a word not used in the, 20, in the 20th century. Uh, it goes all the way back to the 19th century, 18th century. 
um, has to do with Native, Native American practice. So in order to understand this odd use of language, um, I think that we need to, with the help of another sociologist um, and anthropologist, very well known, uh, one of the most important thinkers really um, in the 19th century and late 19th century, extending into the 20th century. Many authors, uh, Sir New Houston actually study with Franz Boas at Columbia. Um, so uh, Franz Boas um, had um, a interesting argument um, about human types as well. And it turns out that he is turning the notion of type on his head. And this is what he says in 1911. When, for instance, it is claimed that certain types of Europeans show better mental endowment than other types of Europeans, the assumption is that these types are stable and cannot undergo far-reaching changes when placed in a new social or geographical environment. An investigation of this problem shows that the assumption of an absolute stability of human types is not plausible. Okay. So Franz Bauer says that, okay, you know, it looks like on the face of it, it looks like there are different types of human beings. And yes, when we look at human faces, um, you know, there really are different human types. Pretty undeniable. But he doesn't think that there's any permanence to those types. That in fact, even though you might be born into one type, uh, when you're put in a different social or geographical environment, um, you actually, that type actually gets radically modified. So it's very much an argument about the importance of environmental input and the way it can change uh, your initial genetic makeup. And to prove his point, Frank Bowers actually is in, became a performance artist. Um, so this is Frank Bowers dressed up as an Inuit, otherwise known as Eskimo, uh, to uh, show that yes, a Caucasian man can look just like an Inuit. And here he is, dressed up or not dressed up at all, um, as a Native American and proving that yes, a Caucasian can look like Native American, there is no permanent social type, no permanent biological or genetic type. There's the constant shifting of boundaries among those types, as well as the possibility of the person of one type taking on the identity of another type. So I think that that is the context for understanding uh, the very odd use of the word would scalp on the part of Venice. And it turns out that Fitzgerald has actually prepared us for that development. Much earlier in the story, when they were actually just talking about Venice um, as being totally dull and having nothing interesting to say, and just sitting around all day and doing nothing and being totally boring, um, when they were talking about her in that context, um, Marjorie actually has this interesting theory that maybe she's so dull and boring and submissive because she's just like one of the Native American women. I think it is that crazy Indian blood in Venice, continued Marjorie. So when she was saying that, making that observation at that point, is that, that Venice is really like the Native American women. 
But it turns out that, yes, she has some Indian blood in her, but what she resembles is not the Indian woman, but the Indian warrior. And that is really what's coming out in that dramatic uh, amputation of Marjorie's um, uh, braids. So the language, of course, is mock heroic. Um, it is uh, using the language of high drama to talk about something that really um, is a very small incident. But nonetheless, it's a very interesting story. And it's the only story where we don't know what the future is going to be, right? You know, that, Marge, that Bernice has done this thing um, that is out of character. We just don't know what the future will hold for her, whether she would keep on on this path, um, that this is just the beginning uh, of a new career and a new personal identity for her, or whether she would uh, revert actually back to the very quiet, very submissive uh, type that she was before. So this is the only story, I think, where we truly don't know if um, the tomorrow is going to resemble today. And I think that it has to do partly with that very unexpected reversion to an original type. Um, so the least we can say is that Fitzgerald is someone who really plays on all the possible permutations of social type. Can't think of anybody more inventive um, or having more to bring you know, to that kind of permutation. Uh, so we're done with Fitzgerald, and uh, on Thursday we'll move on to Faulkner um, and Simon Dying.